Hungry Homies, Hotel Tonight makes it easy to book awesome hotels at amazing rates. They are like a matchmaker between top-rated hotels with unsold rooms and people like you who want to book those rooms. And Hotel Tonight is not just for last-minute bookings. You can book for tonight, tomorrow, and beyond. It's perfect for planners, for procrastinators, and everyone in between. Find sweet deals at cool hotels that you actually want to stay at. Go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. Hey, 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 my hungry homies, my taste buds, my culinary comrades, we've done it. Welcome to another edition of House of Carbs, the food podcast for the hungry people, by the hungry people. On the Ringer Podcast Network, I am your hungry host, Joe House. My taste buds, a glorious show today. Of course, we're going to do best thing I ate this week. We have Ringer food correspondent Danny Chow on to extol the virtues of a new restaurant in the San Gabriel Valley. And our old pal, the the resident food TV critic, and our beloved uh, top chef uh, aficionado, Andrew Greenwald comes on. He and I have to break down the just completed season 16 uh, based in Kentucky. We both really like the show. That's a spoiler alert. But let's get in that belly, my hungry homies, with Danny Chow. All right, my taste buds, as is our way here on House of Carbs, it is time for the best thing I ate this week. Our recurring expert, the Ringer's own resident food correspondent, Danny Chow, is on the line. What's happening? Hello, I am back. Happy to be back. Where are you? Yeah, you're you're back on the show. You're not back from any any uh, world travels. No, right? no, no, no. I I've been I've been laying low since Toronto. Uh, just kind of taking in, taking in my own city. You know. Well, look, your your own city is at the tip top of everybody's uh, list of of you know great food cities in the world. And I keep having these conversations. I was fortunate enough to be out, and we podcasted together. And all anybody can talk about is is the food renaissance in Los Angeles and the place that it has at the top of, you know, the national food rankings here in in, in these fine United States of America. In no small part because of like um, basically the revelation that, that there's incredible diversity of food in Los Angeles that's been there probably for 50 years, but right. it's just now occurring to the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in any event, um, you, I'm sure, since we were last together, have done some great eating. And you know, the reason I'm sure is because I follow you on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hear about one or two outstanding dishes that you may have had recently. So yesterday I was at this new uh, hot pot restaurant, basically out in my neighborhood. It, it li- It's literally like, you know, six blocks from where I live. So San Gabriel Valley. Um, yeah, in the San Gabriel We're Valley. We're allowed to say that. Absolutely. Uh, it's a place called Chunla Hao uh, Chongqing Hot Pot. So it's basically... It, it, Ch- Sichuan Hot Pot is is kind of the biggest trend in you know the San Gabriel Valley 
over the past, you know, two, three years. And recently, a lot of these kind of uh, imports have, have been coming in from mainland China, you know, established established brands from these, you know, very well-regarded restaurants coming here and just setting up shop. So this place is uh, based in Beijing. Um, I think they have like two locations and you walk inside and it's just like the most opulent, like it looks like a million bucks. It probably costs way more than a million bucks to build out, of course, because look, I don't, I don't, I, money doesn't really, I, I'm so bad with comprehending how much things cost <laughs> to make. Um, sure. Yeah. But it, it's beautiful inside. And this is kind of like the, you know, antithesis of what you would normally think of when you go out, you know, for, you know, Chinese food out in the valley, out, out, out in the suburbs, you know, you're thinking about like these small kind of, you know, dingier places that you're, you're really just there for the food. But here it's like this grand, you know, opus of a place. Huh. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of surprised to hear that. Let's for the culinary comrades out there, let's let's um lay out for them what Sichuan hot pot is all about. So it is all about mala, which is something that we've talked about previously in uh on the show. Glorious. And it's just it's a combination of the kind of fiery heat that you would normally uh you know taste in spicy food. Along with this kind of like numbing, Novocaine feeling of something called a, a Sichuan peppercorn, which is ask, actually not in the peppercorn family. It's, it's in the citrus family. Um, when it comes in contact with your tongue, it just kind of like numbs it. And it's yes. this weird feeling of like both things are stabbing your tongue, but it's also like this cooling feeling. It's, it's an addictive sensation that. Look, I it's it's the biggest trend in San Gabriel. That's where I live. There's no way that I'm not going to be exposed to it almost all the time. And so this is just a great experience. Let's talk a little bit about um, sort of the physical experience of it and, and the science behind that. Because everything you just described in terms of the numbing effect, the Novocaine, the Novocaine kind of feel, and the the addictive quality of it, on the face of it, it doesn't seem like that would make sense. Like, why right. would we eat food that would that makes our mouths numb, and 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 enjoy that? Like, where's the pleasure component to that? I, um, and yet, it works. Yeah. So this is something that I've actually written about. Uh, 2016, I wrote a piece about Nashville hot chicken and kind of the craze behind it. And yes. I went to Nashville for. Three days and ate at three hot chicken places. Got the very spiciest level at each one. Um, and I dug into the science a little bit. It's basically capsaicin, which is the, you know, the, the spicy element of, That's of peppers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hot, it hot. binds to these receptors in your tongue. And it basically tricks your brain into thinking your body's on fire. <laughs> and so when when your body feels this way, obviously, it's going to try to do as much as it can to alleviate the pain. And so if you eat a spicy enough level or basically up to your capacity, your body will respond in kind and it will start flooding you with, you know, um, you know, serotonin, dopamine. You know, there, there, there are so many different like agents that your body uses to kind of 
alleviate pain naturally. It, it's and a it combat. Kind of, yeah. Hand to hand combat. Yeah. It floods the body and suddenly you get like this kind of like weird. It almost feels like you're floating. Well, that's I mean, let's let's just let all the hungry homies who haven't had the opportunity to read the story. You know what? We'll rerun the story. We'll post it on the House of Carbs Instagram. We'll post a link to it so that everybody because it's it it deservedly was included in the in the best long form food writing of 2016. It 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 won an award as it deserved uh, because it was just an, an incredible uh, uh, you know travel log through an experience that um, is, is just like so contrary to the to the way that we um, think about enjoying food. Uh, but I, I you talked about the floating. I mean, we have to talk about the 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 experience you had at the very end of the story where <laughs> it was a combination of like in it being incapacitated and if if to me it felt like you know I've never tried peyote, but that's what <laughs> I imagine being on peyote would like would be like. So a few hours before my flight, and I know we're getting like way off topic here, but okay. No, so, but this is this is we're talking Sichuan hot pot, right? The brand new one that opened up in San Gabriel Valley. Best thing you ate this week, and a, a core element of the enjoyment of this food is directly relevant to this story that you're talking about. <laughs> Please so, proceed. Yeah, so. My my final day in Nashville, I eat at Hattie B's, uh, which is one of the the kind of newer um, establishments of hot chicken. Some might call it bougie. It's definitely a place that is a little bit uh, friendlier for tourists, uh, more convenient for tourists. It's close to you know the Vanderbilt campus, uh, and their hottest level is called Shut the Cluck Up. <laughs> and I just, I, it's such a regrettable name. I, I, I hate saying it out loud. <laughs> it's so uh, dumb. Uh, right up my alley. But they use a bunch of extremely hot peppers in there. You know, Trinidad Scorpion. They might even use Carolina Reapers. I'm not sure. Ghost peppers. And I ate it. And I, I remember sitting outside right next to the long line of people trying to get in because I wanted them to see what it looks like when you eat, you know, the hottest level. And I was crying. Yes. There was snot coming out of my nose. It became like this communal experience um, where they got to share in my suffering. Some people took selfies. You know, I took selfies. Um, but afterwards, I start feeling, you know, the feeling I was describing. I started feeling like I was floating onto oncoming traffic. Um, the problem was I didn't really expect it to be that hot. Like I was thinking, oh, it's an upscale type of hot chicken place. It's probably not going to be as spicy as the original versions. I was dead wrong. And so by the time I boarded my flight a few hours later, my stomach was going nuts. Yeah. It, it was just like it the way I describe it in the piece is it felt it doesn't feel like a a sharp sword stabbing you in the in the stomach. It felt more like a like a mallet, like a metal mallet just hitting you from the inside out. So it was a dull pain, but it 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 hurt. Yeah. I read it. I the way I my mind you know, reading your description of it, it felt like a hijacking. It felt like uh, <laughs> you there was a there was an ass assassination attempt. Your stomach was hijacked, and it was going through a a type of torture. Now, I don't mean to suggest that Hattie B's sh that that their hot chicken experience should should feel like torture, but I'm telling you, that's the way the words read, Danny. Right? Yeah. And the funny thing is, I happened to be sitting next to. 
you know, a pretty a pretty cute girl who yeah. was reading David Foster Wallace, and I wanted to make conversation, <laughs> but all of a sudden, like the pain was so unbearable that I just kind of curled up into a ball and just tried to sleep it off. And so, like, it was just, yeah, it was a, it was a definitely a memorable experience. Well, so that that <laughs> that's a setup to, to your beautiful <laughs> experience yesterday at, at Sichuan Hot Pot. And yeah. just for to be clear, just for all of the taste buds out there, you did not have that experience last night. Oh no, no, this yeah. this is actually like I've been eating Sichuan food for for years now. It, it's I really only derive pleasure from it. There, the 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 heat level doesn't really affect me much anymore but it's just the overall experience is perfect this place you know you can get extremely high quality beef uh they you know they definitely cater themselves to new money kind of uh chinese mainland immigrants who are moving here uh who want a taste of home and who can afford the the luxuries of you know paying for like a5 wagyu beef uh, man, oh to man. be dipping in you know in this hot pot. So normally you, you know, the, the plates of beef, you know, they, they come pre-sliced and then you, you dip it into the hot pot and, and cook it yourself. It's this entire interactive experience. Um, but yeah, you can one, a normal plate would cost maybe eight to $9. Uh, the a five Wagyu, I believe costed 69 uh, Yeah. So uh, it, it is kind of funny. <laughs> To do, I so just talk about the basic operation of of how the hot pot, you know, how they bring the food out and how they, you know, how you sort of prepare it. Because I I was going to dismiss you don't you wouldn't do wagyu this way, but you know um, maybe we should talk a little bit how it works. Right. So the first thing they give you is the entire menu, and it's it's very easy because you get a pencil and you just kind of check off what you want. Uh, they offer five different types of stocks and broths. Um, Typically, the the standard way that most people enjoy this stuff is you get a a metal like pot that's put right in front of the table, and it's divided in half, almost like a yin yang sign. One side mm. is just a pure bone broth, and one side is kind of like the fiery, spicy, really flavorful, um, you know, Sichuan, you know, extremely hot mala. Uh, stock. Yeah. Yeah. And so you kind of get the balance between the two. Like if you are feeling a little overloaded, you can kind of go to the bone broth. And if you're ready to dive back in, you go back into the crimson oil slick of <laughs> of the right side, you know? Yeah. Um, and so you just check off, you know, all of the the meats that you want, the vegetables, and it all just kind of gets dipped into this this lovely hot tub. And in kind of a fondue kind of vibe, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like when I was growing up, Hot pot wasn't necessarily the term that we used. We actually, I actually used fondue up until um, hot pot restaurants became the biggest thing in San Gabriel, and then suddenly uh. hot pot was the new terminology. Well, so so let's talk about what you ate last night. Why was it the best thing that you ate? It was just the overall experience. I, I mean, oh, like we had okay. we had you know great lamb shoulder. We had these fish mm. balls. Um, oh, with. Inside the fish balls were um, fish roe, and, oh, wow. and it was just like this umami bomb. Of so like, comp- so so thoughtful. Like right. I, that that is way above and beyond your traditional what I 
think of in a in a hot like the offerings of the proteins. Mm-hmm. It's just sliced meats and 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 you know nicely prepared vegetables. This fish ball, I'm yeah. I'm you've got my attention. Oh yeah, this is this is very classic, very standard. Um, you know, you, you basically if if you're doing if you're doing a, a a real like Chinese hot pot, you need you know either beef balls or fish balls. And if you want to know more about how fish balls, beef balls are made, there's a wonderful show on Netflix right now called Flavorful Origins that kind of okay. breaks it down. Um, oh. It's basi- it basically requires a mallet and a lot of meat, and you just pound the meat until it basically denatures and turns into a completely different texture um, where it gets kind of like that bouncy chew to it. Um, yeah. It's a riveting series if you... Uh, you can find it on Netflix. Each episode is only like twelve minutes long, so it's not even a big investment of your time. Um, but, but yeah, that's going to be some online consuming for me. What was the the were, were the fish balls the best bite? What was the single best bite you had last night? Ah, uh, I would say so. The the funny thing is, I don't even know if they were like handmade in uh in the kitchen. I'm pretty oh. sure they were sourced out. But okay, it was just I've had some fish balls that just haven't been very good. Yeah, uh, and they they've done the same thing. You know, it's it's you know there's fish roe on the inside, but this one you take a bite of that fish roe and it's so it's so flavorful. It almost tasted like you're eating an entire like fried deep fried fish. Uh, that like that was the flavor inside of that like fish roe kind of paste that was inside. It was, so it was for wild. me, that so for me, I would be dipping that in the bone broth because I wouldn't want to spoil. That that oh, spoil is the wrong word, but I wouldn't want to alter the the chemical balance. I want the fish ball to be delivered to me with all of the the the, the elements that went into that thing, since it's so such a uh, highly uh, uh, technical uh, composition. I don't want to stick it in the mala and get numbed off the fish ball. I want to <laughs> eat the fish ball and have that umami bomb. Umami bomb is is going to be the name of the next podcast that we do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, I, I mean, we put it on both sides and we, yeah. we enjoyed it. Uh, we enjoyed both sides, you know, equally. But yeah, yeah I, I would have to say I, I was kind of because you order you order fish balls, you order beef balls as kind of like, oh, it's sim- something that's typically just there. We weren't yeah. really expecting much of it. Uh, me and my dining partner, we, we ate and we were just like, oh, oh, wow. OK, no, this rules. This is this is really good. OK, well, good. Now, now yet another place in the San Gabriel Valley next time I'm out for us to go visit. We're going to do a San Gabriel Valley tour. I know I threatened that the last time we spoke about it. Um, I really mean it. I'm not I'm not kidding. I'm coming out and we're going to do a proper San Gabriel uh, Valley eat, eating tour. Last question for you uh, before I let you go. What'd you drink? Oh, just water. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, not I, beer. I mean, it, it you was, don't it do was, beer with this. It was a lunch. I had to go back and do some work. So, you know. Of course, of yeah, course. Yeah. Yep. The ringer, the ringer has high standards. You can't come in smelling like beer <laughs> uh, in, the, in the afternoon at the ringer. The boss doesn't like it. I know from personal experience. Danny Chow, as always, that's the best thing I ate this week. That's a great thing. We're going to get the, the chicken story up on our Instagram. Did you take pictures yesterday? Uh, I took a few there. There are a few up on my Instagram. Okay, um, good, good. We'll point but, at, at Danny King Chow is his Instagram. As always, my dude, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. As always, my thanks to the homie Danny Chow. Before we get to Andy Greenwald, 
quick word from a couple pals of ours. Did you know, speaking of pals, not all alcohol products are required to list their ingredients. That was news to me. Bud Light is changing that game. They believe that we deserve to know our beer's ingredients. So they put an ingredients label right on the packaging. Bud Light, brewed with hops, barley, water, and rice. No corn syrup, no preservatives, and no artificial flavors. Find out what ingredients are in your beer. Bud Light, enjoy responsibly. AB, Bud Light Beer, St. Louis, Missouri. Today's show also brought to us by our pals at Joybird. Have you heard about Joybird? They are the company behind the revolution in online furniture shopping. Joybird offers one-of-a-kind furniture made to your unique taste. You turn your ideas into reality with hundreds of styles and options. You can sit, look at your computer, think about what you what what you like, what you is in your mind's eye and then convert that into reality from mid-century modern to contemporary classics all customizable in an amazing array of fabric choices from rich buttery leather, that's my style, and plush velvets to every color imaginable. There's even a wide range of kid and pet-friendly upholstery available, as well as free personal design consultants to help nail down your perfect design. And with Joybird's 365-day home trial, listen to that, 365-day home trial, you can skip the furniture store, bring the showroom home, sit on it, sleep on it, break it in, and if you don't love your Joybird, you return it for a full refund. In-home delivery is hassle-free. They'll even remove all the packing material. That's very classy. And returns are free within two weeks of delivery. See how Joybird is revolutionizing online furniture shopping. Create the furniture that brings you joy today at joybird.com carbs. Go to joybird.com slash carbs and receive an exclusive offer for 25% off your first order by using the code carbs. All right, my taste buds, you know, this beloved hungry homie of ours. He has a credential though. I I feel like I want to go through credentials because... No. It's a new one, and it's just so delightful. I, I revel in it every time. The writer and executive producer of Briar yeah. Patch, a new crime anthology series on the USA Network, as well as, of course, co-host of the Watch Podcast on the Rigger Podcast Network, and our beloved resident food TV critic, Andy Greenwald. Hi, buddy. What an intro. Thank you, my friend. What a pleasure to be back with you. I love I, I love doing this. This is this is uh, it's always a joyous occasion when we are convening because food television uh, in in the time since House of Carbs arrived on the podcast scene, food TV mm-hmm. has gotten so great. And not only do we get to geek out on uh, this, the 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 uh, annual series of Top Chef, this is the third year that we've had chance to compare notes on it. Um, but we also just to get 
to, to explore the beautiful space of, of food TV and all the weird stuff out there. In fact, I, I'm going to surprise you with one that you may already be intimately familiar with, but I want to get through uh, Top Chef season 16 first. And where I'd like to begin, if, you, if, if I may, okay. um, on February the 27th, you sent me okay. an email, the title yes. of which was simply Top Chef. And all you said was, yeah, that's right. I can't believe this incredible season. It's a wonderful season. Mm -hmm. I hope we're able to compare notes about it when it's done. And of course, I wrote back uh, uh, immediately. Yes, I can't wait. Um, let's do it now. It's curious that you chose that moment in time because that right. was um, right before the group uh, went off to Macau. Uh, and for the listeners of House of Carbs, if you aren't um, well-versed in this season of Top Chef, season 16 of Top Chef in Kentucky, uh, you may not be able to keep up with all of this. We're going to pretend that all of you have watched it. So um, if you haven't, get yourself caught up and then you can enjoy this hot and heavy conversation right. between me and Greenwald, right? Correct. So why did you why did you email me on February the twenty seventh? That so I think you and I talked a couple months back at the we dawn did. of the season. And early on, I think we and this is to our credit, point to our credit, we identified that this was a very promising season, that things seemed to be clicking, things seemed to be swinging. There was something about the refreshed pool of chef testants that they had gathered, coupled with a truly interesting locale that the producers seem to have a lot of respect for and a lot of understanding as to how best to communicate it to the viewers who, as we often have to remind people, cannot smell the smells or eat the food that we're watching on television. So all the ingredients were there for, dare I say it, a good meal. But I was truly blown away by how excellent the season was once we got into it. And I wrote to you after watching, I miss, I think I was delayed by a day or two, the episode called Kentucky Farewell, the 12th episode of the season before they went off on their uh, finale trips, the last episode in Kentucky. Yeah. And it was mainly because, well, two things. There was a, a there was something bubbling. Oh, boy, I'm really going for the metaphors. There was something bubbling <laughs> on the stockpot uh, that we can talk about in a minute in terms of who was succeeding and who wasn't in ways that surprised and delighted us as viewers. Um, but specifically, this episode did the thing that I just simply love best. And I and I really appreciate the thing about Top Chef. This is 16 seasons in. They, more than maybe any other competition show, I think, understand what's good about their show and what makes them special. And they're not afraid of repeating beats if they're the ones that work. And in this case, it was the tell the chefs who are there to cook an incredible meal with a very high budget. Um to impress their mentors. And so each of the, I think there were five chefs remaining, had very esteemed chefs who they had worked for, worked with, come and taste their food. It was extremely emotional for them. It was very moving. And it spoke to the thing about cooking that I find fascinating. I think you do too. I think podcasts like this one and Dave Chang's podcast do a lot to illuminate, which is the very beautiful, complicated, and sometimes inspiring relationships that arise in the kitchen between veterans and newcomers between mentors and mentees and how you know on if this were a sports podcast we, we'd maybe be talking about coaching trees but in this case we're talking about kitchen trees and the fact that the chefs this mattered so much to them to impress people but conversely that the mentors seemed so honored and sometimes surprised and delighted to be there it was an emotional episode and i i love when top chef does that because you know we say you and i say this every time we talk about this show the reason we like Top Chef 
is because it celebrates excellence. All the other stuff is fun, but it ultimately celebrates artistry and excellence. And that is a thrill to watch. So I love the point that you just made because I was grappling with my own feelings about big picture takeaways from this season. Like I want to give this season a grade at at the end of our conversation. I have a grade in mind that I'm going to give this season, but your point about the emotional connection in that episode between the chefs remaining and their mentors really speaks to um, what I felt like was a dynamic that was pervasive through the entire season This was not a season about drama. This season didn't have any villains. This season didn't have interpersonal Mm -hmm. conflict as a main feature where some seasons previously have had those elements, have had villains, have had interpersonal connect uh, uh, conflict, um, have had, you know, reality TV kind of drama. This season instead, to me, was about like the personal journey of each of the contestants. And it was a, a, an incredible happenstance that we had a, 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 a wonderful diversity of mm-hmm. um, journeys. But uh, also, like, the, we saw a lot of tears this season. There were a lot of tears yeah. that were emanating from these this this connective tissue um not tears emanating from you know drama like them yelling at each, at each other but like tears because no, they were yeah. thinking about musical songs that that were uh evocative and they tried to make food that related to those songs and you know that 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 kind of ilk do you agree totally so much about fandom in any form whether it's sports or music or books or movies or cooking is about the continuum you write like I like this and I understand that it makes me connected to something that wasn't itself connected to something else that came from something else and understanding that. And fundamentally, the difference between a show like Top Chef and something like Chopped or Hell's Kitchen is that Top Chef is about celebrating and honoring and then finding your own way within that continuum. It is not just a snack. It is, dare I say it, a multi-course meal. And that matters a lot. And I think that speaks to why the show is remains successful over uh, over all these seasons. Um, th- we did see amazing growth, personal growth, artistic growth, certainly culinary growth over the course of the season, which is all you ask for. Now, we can talk about how savvy the producers have become and about how, um, you know, Yes, we did have a little Churchill Downs and some bourbon, but otherwise I thought it was a pretty good celebration. Not, I mean, those things were good too, but a pretty unexpected celebration of Kentucky uh, in a lot of ways. But the word you mentioned was diversity of contestants. And the thing is, in a show like this, yes, producers put their thumbs on the scale for certain people, not in terms of who wins contest, not in terms of who wins challenges, but in terms of who gets in front of the cameras to begin with. Um, they can shape storylines to the best of their ability. But ultimately, these shows, no matter what show it is, whether it's this or Survivor, which I always have to say with a caveat that I've never seen it, um, are at the mercy of the people they bring on as contestants. And looking back over past seasons, when I rashly declared this the best season in maybe a decade, um, and I think maybe only the Texas season w- came close, Yeah, um, I-, I noticed that the reason why some seasons faltered had little to do with um, 
the you know the adventures along the way or the cooking it was that the people they ended up with just simply weren't as interesting or as inspiring as they could have been or as we maybe we would have hoped they would have been and i think you and i even did a podcast at some point where we talked about how maybe the talent pool and i certainly wrote this in grantland too like maybe the talent pool isn't what it used to be because of the way food media has changed and the opportunities for people have changed um, this season felt like a, a breath of fresh air. Suddenly, there was a new generation of sous chefs um, ready to take on the challenges and do it with, you know, the, the, the appropriate level of skill and, and confidence and et cetera, et cetera, that made them fun to watch on TV. But this was also the year where Top Chef's I, totally credible commitment to diversity um, shone through with the contestants. And so we had a, you know, a female centric top five, I think it was four women and one man, which was really exciting to see. Um, we had in Eric and Justin, African-American chef testants who made it essentially all the way to the end. Um, and, but, you know, diversity for diversity's sake isn't, isn't what we're chasing here. What was truly thrilling about uh, Eric, for example, and we should probably spend a minute talking about him and his journey on the show also, because I believe he's a, though from New York, he cooks in DC. Yeah. Specifically, the type of food he brought to the show, West African flavors, um, West African culture, West African ingredients, uh, West African, an approach to textures that could only have come from where his family came from, was riveting and breathtaking and thrilling. And you could see in the faces of the judges, challenging. And I think that's truly exciting. Um, it's the same way with almost all TV. It's like, yes, every, you know, maybe every story has been told, but we haven't seen these, we haven't seen certain people get a chance to tell the stories or their version of the stories. And that is what makes certain dramas and comedies exciting these days. Um, movies and certainly now uh, cooking shows as well. It was, it, it also helped that he may be the most charming guy ever to be on this show. But uh, well, I, I don't, I don't know if you share my opinion on that, but what a, what a lovely guy. I could have watched him forever. Yeah, he he's clearly a great dude. And one of the things that I resolved uh after we're done with this podcast, I'm going to hunt him down if he if he, if he spends enough time here yeah. in DC. Uh you know, he's got to come that means I can have sit down across the table from him and have a conversation. I mean, we can't let the uh pack your knives guys get all the great guests. I mean, we beloved Tom Haberstrow and and Kevin Arnovitz and their fantastic uh podcast focused exclusively on Top Chef. That doesn't mean that some of us others, uh, some of us other no. hungry homies out there can't talk. And 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 uh, my dude is right here in, in town. I have a few reactions to to um, what you described. First of all, obviously, I agree with one hundred percent of it. That is uh, not no big surprise. I liked very much that Tom made the statement in in the last show that was a very um, helpful and validating observation because i was feeling it um over the course of the season he said mm -hmm. you know we, we we never know what kind of um state the the future of the industry uh until mm -hmm. we like we encounter folks and he said if if you this is you you guys you group are the future of of the the food and restaurant uh industry the cooking industry and boy is it in in, in great shape you know something to that effect i'm paraphrasing i'm not getting it perfect I can't channel my perfect colicchio, but I, I was happy to have him validate that sentiment because I was feeling it. And to to your point about over the course of the season, the one of the things that stood out to me was like they had to work hard. The judges did to come up with criticisms. It felt like yes. show by show they were really splitting hairs, and I you know. 
I love Padma. Uh, my life, there's a less than 10% chance that my wife will listen to this podcast so I can <laughs> say, get away with this. I mean, I love Padma. I love, I love her in, in, in a way that is, uh, well, it's not unhealthy because I wouldn't do anything weird, but I'm just saying she's a terrific commandeering presence on television. I set that up so that I can criticize her in this manner. The number of times she okay. criticized food for being too salty, it felt like a meme. It felt like <laughs> it was a drinking game. Uh, you know, if Padma criticizes something as being uh, too salty, that's a shot of tequila. Um, but that was like- I can't the, believe the, you're one... going at the queen like this. <laughs> well, I set it up. I, I confessed my love. Okay. I mean, what do All you right. want me to do? She, the, I'm telling you, she must have called things salty 40 times over the course. I'll set the over under at 40 and then dare somebody to go watch every episode and tell me how many times she criticized food for being too salty. Anyway, so that was one observation. I loved Tom validating that, um, you know, this group of chefs, chefs representative of, you know, the direction that that uh, cooking may be headed. Boy, that, that's a that's a cool thing. Quick break. To hear from our good friends at Zip Recruiter. As you know, the best teams start with great talent here in Washington, D.C. The DMV, the Washington Capitol, started with great talent in the great eight. Alex Ovechkin himself, the playoffs, NHL playoffs are upon us. C-A-P-S, caps, caps, caps. You know who else knows about talent? That ZipRecruiter. No one knows the importance of talent more than them. They deliver qualified candidates fast, and here is how. Powerful technology that scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience for your job. But the tech doesn't just stop there. It even learns what kind of candidates you like, and they invite more to apply. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And our listeners can try it for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash C-A-R-B-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The other thing I, I, I wondered about, you talked about the thumbs, uh, you know, the producer's thumbs on the scale. I did wonder, it, it, it was a, a happy coincidence is the, is the nice way I'll put it, that the two finalists, the two chefs uh, that, that were squared off in the final with a chance at winning were the two um, women with the most experience in Southern cooking, Southern yeah. living. Uh, it, it, it felt, you know... Could we have skipped the entire season? Just put Kelsey and, and, and Sarah right into the final. One woman from Alabama, one woman from Kentucky. One of them is going to win the Kentucky-based, uh, you know, show. But it it, it is su such a a uh, you know uh, oversimplification as to be laughable. But it it just was. The word isn't ironic, but it was you know curious that the two of them ended up as you know going head to head. They channeled their Southern stuff. And part of the thing I think that made both of them super successful, this is one of the things that also jumped out when I was trying to do my big picture thing. They were so good at telling stories that yeah. helped me understand the food that they were cooking. And I think that's the appeal of Eric. And that's why I'm going to get that homie in a chair across from me. 
uh, and just talk about you know the revelation that that was his cooking on this show and the his ability to verbalize uh, and and evoke in us uh, a relatable thing like I I don't know I don't believe I've tried his cuisine in any I've been exposed to it in any meaningful way in my life on the planet uh, I'm dying to try some of this stuff but like I got the story yeah let's talk about I want to talk about Kelsey and Sarah but first let's just say one other thing about Eric which is it did point out um a major failing in the construction of the show, which I believe the producers have acknowledged or Tom has acknowledged on Twitter, which is that he's making things that involve watermelon seeds as a key ingredient. He may have yep. made it well, he may have made it poorly, but the judges have to have some fluency with what they're being served um, in order for it to be a fair fight. And we can diversify the chef testants as much as possible. But we also have to diversify the judging panel to bring Ooh, a panoply it. of experiences. You know, there, it's it's no coincidence why uh, Nilu Motamed, who is the former food and wine editor who sort of filled in for Gail while Gail yeah. was on maternity leave during the filming of the season, the clip of her saying, I love fufu, that they aired that as much as Padma said things were salty, basically to cover <laughs> their bases, to say that they had a judge who understood what Eric was doing in that one instance. But yes. We need to understand, but that's something that the show needs to address. And I and I actually have some confidence that that they will going forward. The second piece of it is, um, for as much as I want to praise the season for the way it's learned from its mistakes and it did things almost across the board the right way, I didn't like the finale decision to eliminate one of the three after one course. I'm with um, you. I actually what I liked about it, and I'll I'll, I'll just say the positive part first, which is. I didn't realize as it was happening that they would give them a chance to redo the first course and then the whole meal the next day. Right. Seeing chefs given a chance to hear feedback and then improve is really interesting and something that we rarely get to see on Top Chef. And in fact, that's something that chefs go through all the time when they're designing menus for their bosses, the other chefs, for paying customers. That was interesting. But it felt deeply unfair to pull the rug out from someone at that stage and particularly unfair when... Eric had had the opportunity to prepare for and explain to us the story he wanted to tell. He was going to make a meal that traced the path of the transatlantic slave trade, but also using Chinese ingredients because they were in Macau. What a thing to do. What a story to tell. What, you know, it's just a missed opportunity for us as viewers and possibly the show as well not to have a chance to have told that story. Even if, you know, they seemed to, they, they sold me on the fact that that opening dish wasn't as good as the other two, but that felt unnecessarily cruel and opened them up to criticism that I'm sure they're facing. Um, yeah, the, you can't have the fate of the show for, for folks have been, that have been there that number of weeks come down to basically a single quick fire challenge, right? Like with what was at stake and what he'd already established in the way of his own competence, it was a, it was a, it was an unfair construct. I, I agree. And they always want to futz with the finale. They can't resist it. And, you know, the biggest, the most egregious example was the Brooke Williamson, Kristen Kish final, which they did like Iron Chef. And, yep. you know, which I, I ripped the show for from Grandland. And then Tom responded on Twitter saying that I was right about it and they weren't going to do that again. And I am bragging. That's not a humble brag <laughs> because I care <laughs> about just a brag, so much. brag. Um, mm. That that matters to me. So this was in the scheme of things, not as egregious as that. But I, I, yeah. I, I take issue with it. But to your other point, so here was my the thing that I was most excited about in the season, which is that Top Chef year to year moves around and there's always local people and there are always local people there who say they know better and know the local food ways and they have insight and they recognize the chefs. 
in most cases, they do not win that season. Um, right. Take it a step further. At the beginning of the season, we're in Kentucky. And you and I know because we pay attention to this stuff and we read articles and we either travel or dream of traveling, depending on the age of our respective children, yeah. that Southern cooking is where it's at right now in America, that that Southern foodways... Um, uh, foodways also exploring the, the 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 consequence and the bounty of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, the bounty in terms of food, of course, is what I mean. Uh, all of these things. This is where the more interesting restaurants in America are emerging, and so having the show in Kentucky makes sense. And you and I intellectually get that. But I have to say that when the season started, and I met quote unquote met Kelsey and Sarah, I dismissed them. I didn't dismiss yeah. them as people. I didn't dismiss them as chefs. But I definitely did not consider them as the most serious candidates to win this season. I was looking at uh, like Natalie, who was eliminated in week two because she, you know, obviously the local local for me. She's from Philly. Uh, Eddie with that Philly connection, people who had worked in New York restaurants. And even when I found out Kelsey had worked at Danielle, um, I still just thought. And, and then also when Kelsey um, talking about, you know, she left a very young son behind and she seemed like, you know, it was the personal story was going to win out. My own unexplored prejudices and biases were in full effect. Then week after week, they slayed. And they didn't win on like technicalities, right? They dominated, especially Sarah for a run there at the end. And it was truly exciting to see prejudices that I had never engaged with uh, or considered fully melting away in the face of these powerful, brilliant, empathetic women whose vision of how to run a kitchen, how to run a career, how to cook food, what food mattered, differed from the standard line. And for the fact that it ended up with them winning was a win, obviously for Kelsey and a win for Kentucky and a win for Southern Cooking. But I just think it was just a, I just think it was a win. It was a win for the show. It was a win for, it was a win for American cooking. I have to it's say, an I mean, I, I don't think I can get too hyperbolic. I'm with, look, it's incredible that you mentioned those two aspects because in the first place, I, I will remind you, my response to you uh, on February the 27th yeah. is that I was rooting for, I thought the Dark Horse candidate to win the thing was potentially Kelsey, who I think I characterize as underrated at that point in time. And it really did feel that way through the entirety of the show. And it has to be for the same reason, you know, the, the biases, like I was semi-apologetic about it in my email back to you yeah. uh, that I yeah. would, that I would, you know, deign to, to, to put my fat thumb on, on Kelsey as a potential winner here. And it's the same deal, right? I'm, I, it ha- there's something about my own uh, conceits, you know, middle-aged white dude alert, you know, it's like, uh, she, she's charming. She's lovely. I love the stories she tells, but she's not going to win. Is she like, it was that kind of feeling. Um, throughout the season. But I also I'm so happy that you mentioned the locale and what effect that had on my overall enjoyment. And it's incredible that you and I on two opposite coasts, but but also with a a, a same sort of basic mid-Atlantic orientation, find ourselves at this time in our lives loving southern food why is it that the the southern food is having a moment why is it that all the dishes that the chefs were cooking throughout this season felt so timely so evocative so uh laden with with narrative now and you you mentioned it right it is this uh you know america uh those of us interested in 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 the yep. story of food 
and how um, the story of food has become something that that feels like to me the first time in my life it's available. I can actually go do the research. I can, you know, I can do things like read Michael Twitty's book um, about mm-hmm. the, the the food ways and about the role that slaves played in the development of of um, flavor profiles in in the Low Country and South Carolina and in, in New Orleans and you know all of Southern cooking and and just how Top Chef maybe it was a coincidence doesn't feel like it. But they did a damn great job this season throughout. And I loved the variety of locales. I loved them being in Louisville. I loved them being in, in Rupp Arena. I, I loved being out on the, the, the houseboat and the lake. The party like, boat. That was great. Yeah. I mean, they, they really got a bunch of that, like, just southern flair, southern flavor right. And, again, I don't know if it was – by accident, a little bit of ha- you know co- combination of coincidence and and success, um, you know deliberate success because they're good at putting on a food television show. But man, Kelsey and Sarah as the final two combatants, it just felt so right. You made the point about the young child. This is the thing I still can't get my head around. Like, oh my god, I know I, I, it's a disservice. I here's my criticism: you can't give these people. $125,000. You, you're a TV person, Andy Greenwald. You know how money sloshes around. It's, it's, <laughs> it's an insult to have, you know, these people put their lives on hold for, for three to four months at a time, leave whatever walk of life they're in. Now, there's plenty of return benefit to being on television every week in a highly beautiful and stylized and, you know, uh, to become a character on television show. I get all that. But at the end of the day, the money to the winner is 125. Somebody's got to step up. The quick fire challenges are only five grand. Put another zero on that. Let's really make something out. Let's make make it so that these people's lives are really transformed. She left her baby that was not even one year old. Think about your kids, Andy Greenwald. I thought about my son during this show when he was 11 months old. And think about his mama leaving him for four months. First of all, do you know how well, after? Go ahead. You, you well, go wait, ahead. wait, wait. So wait. So it's not four months. It is six weeks, I believe. I think they shoot the season in six weeks. And then they take a break and then they go shoot the finale. It's probably two weeks, right? Okay, good, so, good, 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 good. But, but, but she did leave her baby, which is incredibly brave and, you know, a choice I will never second guess. Those are still six meaningful weeks, by the way. No, I know. And and she did it for for to inspire him, as she said, and for her career. And I applaud her for it. And I applaud, uh, you know, her support system at home, her mom, her husband, anyone else that was there to help her do it. And and she won. But I totally agree with you. Like, let's be real about the, the sacrifices that she made and reward her accordingly. I couldn't agree yeah. more, especially. Yeah. If, I, I don't. Is, I, you know, I hope nobody thinking. Nobody. I don't like, sound like I'm criticizing, do I? I don't want to be. No, no, like no. I'm criticizing. I, I, I just, we I, just want I'm, her to be. <laughs> as parents, we want her to be paid triple i just mean triple at least 500 grand is what i what she deserves i I, i'm just particularly clear on the point that like i'm just also just extra glad she won because if she had been eliminated week two and then had to spend those six weeks watching other dum-dums cook in last chance kitchen (laughs) and pretend to clap for them oh yeah i I can't even allow that feeling to enter my chest um i'm with you so here's my thought about the southern thing um 
this this may be a reference that you you're gonna appreciate, and I hope some of our listeners do too. But um, so do you remember Joe House? We're not we're not exactly the same age, but I feel like maybe culturally we have some of the same benchmarks. And just in the '90s, loving hip hop music and loving loving rap, yep. and basically yep. being you're either East Coast or you're West Coast. And being East Coast people, we liked East Coast rap. And then, okay, maybe secretly we had a Snoop CD or or Farsight or whatever. Little but Pac, that little was Pac. It. And, 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 or you were a Pac guy? My God. So this, this little, podcast little is over. A little bit. But, little Pac. but my point being, you remember probably grabbing issues of The Source in 1994 to see how many mics the new Nas album got or whatever. And the back yeah. of the magazine would be covered with these, to my eyes, gaudy pen and pixel drawings from record labels, names like No Limit of other rap music that I'd never heard of that didn't seem to have any references and also didn't seem to value the same like, you know, this is so boring, but like backpacky ideas of like lyricism, right? Or how respecting the elders and there was technique that you had to respect. And then here came here come the Southern rappers that had their own thing. And then all of a sudden we heard Outkast, right? Or, Or other people coming coming up from the South. And it was mind blowing, but still the thought in like 96, 97, that the entire epicenter of what this music meant would shift however many hundreds of miles it is to Atlanta would have been impossible to consider. But it did. And it feels like that's happening with food too. And maybe one of the reasons is that obsession, that that stultifying, paralyzing obsession with technique. That Mm -hmm. when you have so much history that's so tight and precise, and in the case of fine dining, it's also always about money and it's about Europe and it's about who you're serving the food to and who can afford it you lose something, you lose some, dare I say, soul. And which is a very difficult and ephemeral term. So forgive me. But I think you know what I'm saying here. And yeah, I think about what we saw in this episode of of Top Chef. I think about the way cooking is going in general. I think about this episode of the Dave Chang show also on the Ringer Podcast Network I just listened to where he's talking to Unjo, Unjo uh, Park, the new executive yeah. chef of his new restaurant, Cowie, and about yeah. how she served him a tasting menu like as a pre-open and he was so upset he had to go out and order pizza for everyone because it was so tight and fearful. And then they just started cooking the food their grandmas made and he smiled. And like that piece of cooking, that piece of of the artistry, I, I don't want to go into like magical Southerner thinking that like just because grandmas, you know, shuck the corn on the porch, it's better. But there is something there and there's something to it. And Kelsey and Sarah reminded the country of it in this finale. Yeah. Exactly. That they said so. They told us. They reminded us, and and they with a with an uh, uh, incontrovertible credibility, right? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Well, look, and, and, and it's ex- and it's exciting. It's exciting. I mean, it's a high bar that the show set for itself. Um, let's give a let's give grades for this season. Uh, do you want me to go first? Or do you want to go first? Uh, you you go first. You've you've thought about it. Well, I, I, I mean, uh, uh, only to the extent that I knew I'd be chatting with you and I felt like it would be fun. I'm giving this season an A minus. I can't make it and call it an unqualified, um, you know, across the board wild success because I still crave a villain. I still want <laughs> I still want there to be a little bit the best we got this season was Sarah uh, being upset about the folks calling out the fact that she, Adrian principally is who she blamed for using yeah. a box of waffle mix. And I mean, 
And they kept going back to it. It did seem like there was a little bit of static between Adrian and Sarah, even though Sarah said that they were all good. It did feel also, like Adrian kept as, Adrian kept calling her mama, which is weird. And <laughs> it was weird. It was weird. Also, so uh, that's Adrian, the minus for Adrian me. Won I, me over, I like a villain. Adrian won me over a little at the end, but she definitely was a classic skate through. You know, like yeah. she didn't win very much, if at all, but she also didn't lose. So, right. uh, you know, I was I, I was not surprised that she tapped out first in Macau. Um, I see I, I'm the opposite of you in that regard. Like, I don't like reality TV generally. I don't want villains. <laughs> I like that the villains were Michelle's shyness and Eddie's yes. uh, anxiety, you know, that they sure. were much more. Um, they weren't they weren't human villains. They were just their own issues. Demons. Brought to the four. Yeah. Their own demons. I I, I give this. Uh, I give the season an A, both because I loved the hang. I really love these guys. I loved, yeah. I, mean, I loved Justin. I loved when Justin was back in the finale and supporting Eric. And I, I loved watching these guys get along and look out for each other. But I give it an A, not because it was necessarily. I'm not ready to say this was as good as like the Vegas All Stars season, or you know, or, or and I haven't thought about the Texas season in a while, but I still hold that up as a really good one. But for me, this was the season that said they could run 15 more that the health of the show is so strong and the health of the industry, as Tom said, is so strong, particularly in the age range of people who would want to come on the show. Um, it, it, it fills me with such optimism that I have to give it the highest grade. Okay. I'll, I'll go along with you uh, in that regard. I'm not going to try and argue uh, away, you away from that position. A minus and A are pretty good. Um, and I, I do believe I'm, I'm right there with you. How is it possible in the 16th season that there's an opportunity to to innovate or to reinvent, and and yet they they manage to do so. So right, kudos to them. Strong strong kudos. Strong um, kudos. We should do another podcast about Tom's hats. Uh, <laughs> opposite of kudos to some of those hat choices, but yeah, I he I think you know if it felt like he might have been uh, trolling us a little bit. I a mean, little bit and my my only other note if anyone from magical elves listens to this is you have to continue to convince me why graham elliott is on the show seems like a lovely <laughs> guy his restaurants might be good i like that he took them on a tour of the markets because that's the first time i've seen him sort of bring a personal touch to it but otherwise i i'm sorry i just i don't get it i don't get what he's bringing um throw more well, money it, at emerald you know his single greatest contribution to the entire series was having a restaurant in macau and so that totally. they chose that site, which was a great site, by the way, for for Incredible. a finale. It, it had such so a, an exotic and and it was like visually beautiful. I'm going to let you go in one minute, but I I, I want to uh, see if you've been watching any other food TV. <laughs> Is there anything else that's been popping up on your uh, if, on your guide list? If anyone listens to the watch, they will know that I haven't been watching anything. <laughs> I'm yeah, so busy right. trying to make this show. I have, I have not. I have not. I wish that I had. Um, I have not. If you have a tip for me, let me know. Because I, well, I have one, but I'm going to save it for the next time that you've had some opportunity. And it's a show that that um, so far is only a season in. So, uh, but I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to take you uh, too deep on it. My last thing before I let you go. You and I talked about uh, the last time we were together in the in the you know. You sitting behind the scenes of Briar Patch and the food elements of that, and it it has you know translated into at some point us being together in New Mexico, which is in Albuquerque, oh, so. New Mexico, which is just going to be so great. 
But uh, I'm gonna. I want to ask you a question. You have the, the season is making its its debut when? Uh, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Oh, we have, oh I didn't uh, know if there filmed... was a date. No, no, we filmed this summer. Um, so the earliest it could ever happen would be the near the end of this year. More likely, okay. uh, more likely the beginning of next year. Okay. Well, uh, just just as a teaser, will, will there will will food will there be a role for food? Yes. In 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 the series, will there yes. be an episode or two where the, where a meal might be relevant to the direction that the show takes? Food is relevant from the pilot episode because that's okay. really all I'm interested in writing about. <laughs> and it and okay. I and I betray myself very very early. Okay, uh, good good. I'm 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 happy to hear it. We're we're looking forward to seeing it. Maybe the a- a- end of this year, as always. Andy Greenwald, extremely appreciative of you taking the time. When you have some time, we're going to sit down and go through a couple food shows. You know, Dave Chang's second season of Ugly Delicious will pop up. Uh, Once that gets going, maybe that'll be the reason for us to reconvene. I can't wait for either thing. Thank you for always having me. I love it. Love you, buddy. Thanks. Okay, there we go. My taste buds, another glorious show in the books. Check the Instagram at the House of Carbs. We're gonna throw up, and I don't mean throw up literally, but we're going to post the the, the article we mentioned, Danny Chow's uh, hot chicken story from Nashville. Uh, go to Danny's Instagram so you can look at the Sichuan hot pot. His uh, handle at Danny King Chow. Uh, you can check it out. And we also get some food up. I'm headed down to Mexico. For a little spring break, and I bet a picture of a tequila or 10 show up on at the House of Carbs. Until next week, my hungry homies, let's stay hungry out there. <laughs>